I'll read Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Father, we thank you for your word And we pray, Lord, that you would open our minds and our hearts to understand it. Uh, We pray, Lord, that we would not try to adapt your word to our uh, desires, but that we would conform our desires and our mind to your word. We ask you to open us up now, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. I... uh, I made a lot of jokes when I spoke about heaven. It's a rather, you know, fun topic. And uh, I kind of promised that I wouldn't make any jokes about hell. But I will start with a comment that uh, normally today, Pastor Kaiser would bring a message on uh, the election. And so maybe there are some of us here that would prefer to hear this message on hell than one on politicians. I don't know. Okay. Um, this might be long. I'll begin, uh, and, and it will follow the outline, although I have a couple sections that aren't in the outline, and, and one of them is what I begin with. And I first want to make four statements concerning the afterlife, just before I get to the topic. Um, first statement, everyone, every human soul will live forever in either heaven or hell. It's one of the two. Uh, when I was a young believer, uh, I had this... Uh, Sunbird, and I don't know if I ever mentioned this at the pulpit, but I know I've told several people, but when I became a believer, I had this uh, Pontiac Sunbird, and in the back window, I put a picture, a sticker from the Bible bookstore of Jesus in one corner and of Satan in the other corner of my back window, and I wanted to get letters that would say, choose you to stay whom you will serve, but I never really got to that part, and and yet I had these, these choices, you know. And so people probably thought I was very strange, especially when they looked at the bumper sticker and it said, uh, are you ready for the rapture? And, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I was very, very motivated to reach out to people as a young believer. And uh, that choose you to stay whom you'll serve is from Joshua. And that was a verse that God brought me into his kingdom with. Uh, and I won't go into that. I've told that before. Uh, another point about this, that everyone will be either in heaven or hell is that Jesus judges. In Matthew 25, Jesus spoke of how he will separate the sheep from the goats. And the sheep will come to one side, the goats will come to the other side. And the last verse of that section reads, all will receive either everlasting punishment or eternal life. And those are the same words. And so if you believe in heaven, you should believe in hell because God uses the same word to describe the everlasting nature of both of them. So, I view hell, kind of like as a metaphor, as a maximum security prison for the devil and his fallen angels, as well as all the wicked that will go there. 
uh, this is some place from which they will never escape. And uh, not only is it a maximum security prison, it's kind of more like an old style uh, castle where the king had total control and he would have those wicked people in his dungeons and he would have them strapped, strapped to devices to torture them. That's what hell is like. It's not like our maximum security prisons that are kind of cushy and you know if they don't have their cable TV, they're complaining. It's not like that at all. Heaven, by contrast, is a paradise filled with peace and joy, and God is there, and we will forever see his face. Uh, second point, humans have bodies and spirits in heaven and hell. I talked about that two weeks ago as far as heaven goes. Same is true for uh, hell. Uh, Jesus warns in Matthew 10:28, fear him who is uh, able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So the body will go into hell with that spirit that had been stored in Hades. What I just read mentions that death and Hades gave up their dead and was cast into that pit. Death and Hades. And so what it's talking about is bodies and spirits. They're reunited to be cast into the pit. So that was the second point. Third point, our eternal destiny is sealed on this earth. There is nothing after our life. These are things I just wanted to be clear in case I get it lost during the rest of the message. And so... Uh, there are three verses I'll share. Romans 3.20, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Galatians 3.22, the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Christ might be given to those who believe. So we're all under sin and the promise through faith is given to those who believe. Salvation is given to those who believe. It is not earned. Revelation 20 verse 12, and again what I just read, the books were opened and another book was opened. These books are the books of the records against us. They are the book of the records of our sins. And only those found written in the book of life are saved. So our eternal destiny is sealed on this earth, not beyond it, not beyond the grave, here. And the last point is that Christ's sacrificial death is the only key to the gate of heaven. That's it. No other ways through that gate. Hebrews 9 verses 27 and 28 it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. In 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So I just wanted to get all those clear statements out here before I might get it a little fuzzy with what else I'm going to talk about. Now, I want to begin with a definition of hell. And I was very, I'm very precise. It's a four-word definition of hell, and I think it's appropriate. Hell is a place of continual, conscious, eternal torment. All four of those words have meaning. Just like if, you ever, if you've ever studied the substitutionary atonement of Christ, you know that there are certain words that you use. It's the same thing with hell. Let me define each of those. Continual. No lapse, no relief, no respite, no timeouts, no nothing. It's constant. Uh, various of us were at the Anders the other night. It seems like all of us were at the Anders the other night. It was a huge crowd. And uh, those of us that were near the fire at points in time know how delightful a respite from that fire was. <laughs> Especially when one of those pieces of furniture burst into flames. 
that, that heat kicked up like 10, 20 degrees, and people tended to back away a little bit. But you just, people in hell will not have that option. It will be ever-present. Revelation 14.11 says, And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now, we make a lot about the book of Revelation, and yet this comes right after uh, the birth of Christ and, and, and Satan persecuting the church. This is, I believe, about all of, all of Christianity. This is about all of the humans. It's not just some select, really, really, really evil humans that you know, God releases at the end of the age. This is about humans. This is about people who are marked for destruction. Hell is a place of continual conscience. People are alert and awake in hell. They're weeping and gnashing their teeth. And the best illustration here, there are several, but a really, really good one is the rich man Lazarus. And in Luke 16, he is in the torments in Hades. He lifts up his eyes and he sees Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cries out saying, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Now, uh, that is told as, uh, that's not told as a parable by Christ. That's fact. He's telling it like it was. And uh, this is showing that that rich man, who is unnamed, uh, is in torment. And he's conscious of it. He's well aware of it. He is not sleeping. He is not impervious to this. Continual, conscious, eternal. Eternal means never-ending, going on forever and ever. Mark 3.29 reads, He who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Never and eternal. Never has forgiveness, is subject to eternal condemnation. And Jude, there's a huge section in Jude. Uh, it's just the one chapter. But from verses 4 to 13, I'll only read the start and end. Certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. And then, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Again, forever. Continual, conscious, eternal, and torment. This is the one that I think gives most people grief. And it, frankly, it's given me grief. Anybody who's had people that you love die, that you were fairly certain were unbelievers, it's given you pause to consider this aspect of it. But let God's word be true, and every man a liar. Matthew 13. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus used that phrase, wailing and gnashing of teeth, seven times, totally different times. And so he knew that he wanted to say that. He knew that people would be trying to corrupt his words down the road. And so he has reiterated it over and over and over again. In Mark 9, verse 42 to 48, this is the only uh, occasion in the Gospels where this occurs, but... He refers to the worm not dying and the fire not being quenched. And the worm would indicate torments from within, right? I mean, who of us haven't read some of these icky Bible stories about the, you know, the worms eating him and then his bowels burst open and all this? That's torment from within. That's pain. And then we also have fire, the torments from without. So the torment of hell will be both from without and from, and from within. And Jesus repeated that three times. And each time he said, if your hand offends you, cut it off. If your foot offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. If they're drawing you into sin, deal with it. 
That's what he was saying. He wasn't saying cut off your body parts. He was saying deal with your sin. It's important. You don't want to test God in this. Matthew 25:41, uh, Jesus said this, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And I want to draw out three points. Depart from me. So these people are being separated from all that is good in this universe because God is the source of all good. They are intentionally being cut off from all of that. And you are to depart into the everlasting fire. Again, everlasting, forever devouring and tormenting the souls in hell. And joining with the devil and his angels. You are going to be cast into hell with those that you sided with on earth. That's the reality. You, you picked your loyalty and now you're going to have to live with it. Now, the next part is about lies about hell. This part was about truths about hell, and it was a good definition. Now I want to share with you some of the lies that are common about hell. These are ways, I believe, that people cope with what we just read about, the, the harshness of it, the difficulty of it. And these are very popular. Uh, the first lie is universalism. And that's essentially no one goes to hell, everyone goes to heaven. And uh, what's interesting is they pull verses out in support of this. And so listen to these. 1 Corinthians 15:22, As in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So you're contrasting the alls there. In Christ all shall be made alive. And so obviously they're implying that to be in Christ is to be saved. And so all are coming to life in Christ. Another one, 2 Corinthians 5.19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And so the point is, God is reconciling all things to himself and he is not regarding their sins. He's not imputing their sins to them. Colossians 1, verses 19 and 20. This is along the same line. For it pleased the Father that in him, in Christ, all the fullness should dwell and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Uh, and another one, and this one is really ingenious. In 1 John 4, 8 and verse 16, it's twice repeated that God is love. God is love. In 1 Corinthians 13, 5, we read that love keeps no record of wrongs. So God's destroyed the evidence against everybody. So therefore, he's not going to find anybody guilty and send them into hell because he's destroyed the evidence because he's love and love keeps no record of wrongs. Very ingenious. So now, to combat these, the first thing is that you really have to realize that, uh, and, and those of us in the Reformed faith often deal with this because in 1 John 2.2, uh, there's a word, the world, all the world, and uh, A.W. Pink actually has a good write-up on that. But all and the whole world they almost never mean all, every person on earth. And, and the, the phrase that's used to discriminate between these is this. All usually means without distinction, not without exception. And so you're not talking about all people, you're talking about all peoples. And so that's typically what these refer to. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. It would take way too long, but I just have to brush through some of these. And now... The scriptural opposition to the belief in universalism is just simply overwhelming, and we'll go through a lot more texts here that will show that. And so people have to want to ignore lots of the Bible in order to believe that. Um, 
and maybe they've made their own Bible. I don't know. You know, it's kind of popular these days. You know, the message, he is, you know, Eugene Peterson has took, taken quite a lot of liberties with his Bible called The Message. Um, I don't mind reading it, but I certainly don't want to call it a Bible entirely. Um, once you start deviating that significantly from the text, uh, you might get some value from it, but just as I was explaining to Josiah before church, the apocryphal books you can get some value from, but they're not the canon. They're not the word of God. Uh, a verse in reference to what I've just spoken of in terms of universalism is this. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 9. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Uh, very powerful opposition to a belief in universalism. Second lie about hell is annihilationism. Those that are sent to hell will cease to exist after some brief period of punishment. That's what annihilationism means. And some otherwise orthodox people over time have tended to believe this. Support for it is in a few verses, um, more than these probably, but in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, uh, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction. You see what they're saying is to be destroyed is to be destroyed. You're gone. No recollection, no memory, you're gone. Your history. Hebrews 10.39, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. And 2 Peter 2.12, these men blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like brute beasts, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like beasts, they too will perish. And I believe the annihilationists especially like this one because it equates them with beasts. And this is why I wondered whether C.S. Lewis's view of hell was uh, orthodox because uh, he uses that analogy in one of his books in Chronicles of Narnia. But I've since uh, listened to his book on suffering and... He speaks a lot about hell. He gets rather technical, overly technical, I think. It, so it makes you wonder whether he's trying to hide, slip something in there, you know, trying to fool you in some way. But, but he really, it sounded orthodox. I mean, all of what he was saying about hell in his book on suffering sounded orthodox. So I, I don't honestly know where he stood. Maybe he wrote that book a few years later and he had come around. Uh, but uh, the problem that I have with C.S. Lewis is that he just doesn't have a very high regard for scripture. And that disturbs me because he doesn't seem to need to fit things into scripture. And uh, he himself kind of hints at that in various places in his books. But still, great writer, wonderful stuff. It just w comes with a warning. Now, uh, what are opposition? What is opposition to annihilationism? Uh, again, uh, they're being selective in how they choose to employ the words. They're trying to use definitions and, and take them from popular, uh, the popular culture or whatever. But in scripture, these words never mean like nothing, going into nothingness. Um, as a matter of fact, the only thing about that is when God created the world out of nothing, all of what he's created is never really destroyed. In this world, I mean, and even, even uh, physicists talk about that, you know, matter just really doesn't get destroyed in this earth. It, it, it just, just exists in another form. And so that's what is happening here. When we talk about destruction, destroyed, perish, all of this, and this is where I was wondering about C.S. Lewis because he talked at length about changing forms. Um, and I wasn't sure that he was then 
talking about the same thing as I was understanding, you know, conscious, eternal, you know, uh, uh, continual torment of hell. But some of the verses that argue against this are what I mentioned earlier, but by uh, Christ quoting the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, that doesn't seem to have an end. And uh, Matthew 25:46, where he separated the sheep from the goats, he specifically says a punishment is eternal in its length and not in its effect. You know, it goes on forever. Everlasting life or everlasting death, it's one of the two. That's part of the reason I chose the names for these messages. Eternal life, eternal death. I didn't want to choose just heaven and hell because these words mean something. Another one, Second Peter 2.17, he's speaking of these men uh, that, that are headed for destruction, the ones I mentioned earlier. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Again, these words mean something. One last lie, purgatory. This is the belief that the punishment of hell is temporary and that all souls will, event all souls will eventually go to heaven. Um, you just have to spend more time there, kind of like almost a belief in reincarnation, you know, where as long as you just keep coming back, you'll get there, you know. But uh, the fact is, that purgatory doesn't exist. It's unscriptural. They will point to some verses, though, and they're, again, it's very interesting what they point to. Matthew 5, 25 and 26. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. So see, there's hope to get out. If you pay the last penny, you're out, right? And so they're implying that there's an escape from this because he's obviously talking about hell. Matthew 12:32. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So see, sins against the Holy Spirit won't be forgiven in the age to come, but what about other sins? So it opens the door through implication. It's a logical fallacy, but yet... You know, they use it as their support. Um, opposition to purgatory is, uh, is strong, but uh, liberals really believe that punishment is corrective. I mean, that's why now we have correctional institutions in our country. We don't have prisons, really. We don't have pl bad places where people are punished. We have good places where people are reformed. <laughs> and they work, too, don't they? <laughs> so uh, there's a great quote by Pink, uh, A.W. Pink, on in his book, uh, small book, Eternal Punishment. There are those who allow that the wicked will be cast into hell, and yet they insist that the punishment is corrective rather than retributive. A sort of Protestant purgatory is invented, the fires of which are to be purifying rather than penal. And this is really getting at the heart of it. We understand that Roman Catholics don't give full credibility to the Word of God, and they can pretty much create anything they want that's outside of the Word and then call it their tradition and call it as equal with the Word. And, in, and with purgatory, they have some support, you know, what I give here, weak, but still they point to it, and they have other support. But uh, why do Protestants believe in it? It's because they want to. You know, they desperately want to. It's just a, it's just a nice way of dealing with the messy reality of life. In Matthew 25, Jesus speaks of this, and I, I kind of come back to that because he said many things very clearly. He talks about separating the sheep and the goats. Uh, and there are either sheep or goats. There is either the right hand or the left hand. You know, these goats don't turn into sheep. You know, it's not like uh, 
geep or shoats, you know. There isn't some weird animal. <laughs> They're just sheep or goats. It's one of the two. Um, now, I want to go into... Um, I, I love the web. It's just so interesting. And it gives you really good insight into... Uh, I mean, I kind of use it as a quasi-statistical thing because these people care enough to write this stuff and they get it out there and you just look some hits, positive, negative, positive, negative. Well, I tell you, on hell, there are a lot of people that don't like hell. And so they write at length about it on the web. And so there's this one guy too, very, very thoughtful writer, a young guy, 23 years old, been in the church, grew up in the church, and yet he was faced with this dilemma of conscience because of hell. And there are two men that wrote in in response to articles that he posted on his blog. Their names are Don and Bob. Uh, the guy that wrote the thing is called Michael. Don is a Baptist. He was a Baptist and a deacon in his church for over 20 years, but he's no longer in church. He quit going to church like three years ago because he's gone off the deep end, frankly, and I'll show you how. His name is Don. And then there's another guy named Bob. And he's spiritual, but he's pretty much non-religious. And let me share you their views. Um, I just think it's fascinating. Bob, remember, he's the last guy I mentioned. He's the spiritual guy, but the not religious guy. This is how he starts out too. I think, I think the concepts of heaven and hell are simply made up. Nothing more than that. For some reason, religion seems chock full of punishment for disobedience. It's a human trait that some believe is also applied in heaven. But if we believe that God loves us unconditionally, and I do, then wouldn't he want us all to be with him after we die? No matter what we did wrong, quote, unquote, as a human, could a human parent ever truly turn his back on his or her flesh and blood? I don't believe that God would either. I don't like to think of my God, in asterisks, as being vindictive or spiteful. Those are human attributes. I used to believe that heaven was simply being with God and hell was choosing to not be with God and that the ensuing suffering was self-inflicted torture rather than anything meted out by our loving Father that pain would be levels of magnitude worse than any fire and brimstone could be. But since most humans fear fire, it makes a most compelling image of what would await us in hell. And this is in response to another letter later in the blog. We say that God loves us unconditionally, yet we are very keen to put conditions on that love. Me, I simply do not believe in a vindictive, spiteful, wrathful, or vengeful God. Those are weaknesses. I believe there are human emotions and traits that God does not possess. But hey, maybe I'm wrong. Oh, he's a humble, humble heretic. Um, he starts out with, I think, and then he never quotes anything from the Bible. Now, we all know people like this. I mean, you, they'd wax eloquent on any video that you'd you know, start sh shooting people at a, at a high school or a college. And uh, I have a series of tapes on that by Sproul. And these people are very, very free with their opinions. He believes in God that loves unconditionally. Yet he capitalized God, he and him. And so this guy has read some of the Bible at least because I don't think he would have done that otherwise. That had to show a familiarity with the church. But when he put asterisks around my God, I thought that's interesting. You know, he's differentiating his own God. He even knows he's got his own God. It's like a, you know, a, a, on his shelf at home. So this guy is just a type of a person that is just ignoring scripture. And so we all meet people like this. And that's why I'm kind of introducing like this, because they're types of people. And you'll, you'll meet a lot of them. Now, this guy is the Baptist. He was in a Baptist church for over 20 years as a deacon. And uh, it, he's very subtle. He's very smooth. 
And these are the people that God warns us about in Scripture. These people are going to get harsher judgment than others because they have been in the church, they have tasted of God, and now they're turning from Him. Listen to this fellow. I'm a retired educator, history. I checked out literal versions of the Bible and various concordances that went with them. Two years ago, I left the church. I was a deacon for 21 years and a Baptist all my life. I could not stay in a place that believed so diametrically opposite as I did. I have never looked back. I am very open-minded now. I will and do study any belief system to see if it has anything to offer me. I don't really know if any of my old friends would define me as a Christian today. That doesn't bother me one way or the other. I would like to tell you basically what I believe about the Bible. Is it inspired by God? Yes. Is it inerrant? No. I don't believe it is a manual for Christian living. I believe it is an account of the experiences of early Christians written down for the first time at least 60 years after the crucifixion. None of the authors, whoever they were, were eyewitnesses to the ministry of Jesus. All of the accounts were orally passed from generation to generation. Where does he come up with this stuff? I don't know. He, he, but he cites this stuff. He's a teacher. You know, a lot of credibility supposedly accumulating towards him. The man that wrote the original blog post and a subsequent one, his name is Michael. He's 23. His mother wrote in in response to this. I mean, she's got exclamation points and capital letters and hers went on and on and on and on. And she seems solid. I mean, she was presenting a very orthodox view. But this is one of the things that she mentioned to her son in closing. Your dad and I love you. We'll always love you, no matter what you say or do or believe. That's called unconditional love. And that's what we have for you and all our family. Exclamation point for like 10, 20. That's the same kind of love God has for us. Thank God, Jesus and the Holy Spirit. You are one smart man and we are so very proud of you. We love you, Mom. And now this guy, Don, he's responding to Michael's mom on Michael's blog. And this is what he says. Listen to this. Mom, you are so right. Your unconditional love is well-deserved by Michael. I have a few questions. If your love is unconditional, and you say it is, and you say God's love is also unconditional, why do you place conditions on his love that you would not place on your own? That conditions being that if we don't love him back and follow his rules, he will send us to hell. God told us to love him unconditionally, and our neighbors as ourselves should we as parents expect less of him? Will he ask of us something he is not willing to do himself? Isn't that so subtle? Oh, he's just undermining this woman's faith right on her son's blog. Oh, it just it makes me want to go find this guy, you know. <laughs> but uh, this is the heretics God warns us about in the Bible. He's very skilled at what he's doing. And he's very intentional at what he's doing too. Um, and this is the type that abandoned scripture when he found that it just didn't suit him. It didn't fit his philosophy of life. Now, this is the original post. This Michael had posted uh, four views of hell. And he, he stated the orthodox view of hell very clearly and very well. And he did not tip his cards. He really didn't show which one he believed. But then five days later, he did post. And this is part from that post. All the churches I'd attended believed and taught that hell was a real place of eternal torment and that the majority of people were going to end up there. Nobody talked about it much, though, as the fire and brimstone days of preaching were past and churches were more grace-oriented now. Then he goes on to say that since it became grace-oriented, their uh, membership is declining. <laughs> so it was kind of funny. It was a little... 
I would walk into a store and see dozens of people around me and try to imagine 90% of them, or even one of them, literally burning in a pit of fire. It was terrifying. There was not a soul I'd ever met who I would wish that on for five minutes, let alone forever. As I expanded that and thought more about all the hell-bound people, billions and billions of them, it was crushing to the point of total despair. This universe was a total disaster. Me and my fellow church members would leave our comfortable homes on Sunday morning, drive past thousands of doomed souls while we looked forward to sitting in comfortable pews to hear a sermon. I saw two choices of how to look at the situation, and, and these are logical. First, my church members, including me, were the most selfish, uncompassionate people in the history of the world. We knew how to keep people from eternal torment, yet slacked on evangelism because it was uncomfortable, inconvenient, or hard. We were the ones who deserved to perish. Number two, none of us really believed deep down that the eternal picture was that bleak and that the stakes were so massive, or else as sane human beings, we'd be doing more about it. And then he goes on to say, this eventually led me to accept the universalist view of eternity, that all souls go to heaven. It has tons of biblical support. I thought, yeah, show me. But I won't pretend that there aren't problem passages this view, for this view as well. In the end, we pick a view and we live accordingly. Once we've picked one, then those problem passages don't seem too bad. And the support seems overwhelming. The classic human gift of justification is still alive and well. And I was using it with universalism. And then he posts a little bit later, I can't say that I'm 100% universalist today because while it has great merit, it is no more knowable than any other doctrine. We all do our best and make assumptions and fill in the gaps. This guy's got some problems. He initially had this conscience problem because he was in the church, because he was learning the truth and knowing it, and because he'd grown up with it. And yet now it doesn't conform with his fallen nature. He's unsaved, obviously, and it, un it does not conform with his beliefs right now. And so he's postmodern through and through. You could see that in here. He believes just because there's a view that he could find a few verses to support, that it's like equally valid, that this is true and this is true and this is true. No, no. Just because there's a different view doesn't mean it's right. It doesn't mean that it's right. It means that you should study it more when there are different views that people hold to with such you know, strength of convictions. That means you need to study. You need to pursue this. You need to understand what you believe, and you need to understand why what that other person believes isn't quite right. Now, you don't need to go beat them about the head and shoulders with what they believe, but yet you really should know. You should respect God's word enough to figure this out. He doesn't. He's at the point where he's like, ah, you know, you could just do whatever you want with it. You can justify whatever it is you believe. And, and he just essentially is going down the same path of the men that he have written into his blog, this Don and Bob. Um, he's just basically pitching the word. Here's a quote from Charles Hodge that is in an article he wrote called Future Punishment. And this man was at Princeton back in the late 1800s. It is to pervert and to misinterpret the word of God to make one passage contradict another simply because the language used admits of an explanation which brings them into conflict. This is what unbelievers do. Unbelievers do this all the time. If, if you've ever studied so-called errors in the Bible, that's what you find a lot of. You know, they just, if they can possibly get two passages to, to conflict, they do. Even though there's a very rational explanation for why they uh, could both be true. 
No, no. It says it right there. That's that's error. And then and then as you eliminate them, oh, you know, you're a cheater. You know. So they just have an axe to grind. They're in there and they want their way. Now, the next one I want to cover is three objections to hell. These are different than what I just went through. These are about God. These are kind of logical deductions from the scripture itself that says God can't send anybody to hell. There are three of them. The first one is God is too loving to send people to hell. It would be unloving of him to send people to hell. You know, and the first thing I ask is, if God is too loving to send people to hell, why does he talk about it so much in the Bible? I mean, you know, is he just a bad parent? Is he just like one of these parents you see at the store, one of these liberal parents? Billy, don't do that. Billy, don't touch that. Billy, come here. And the kid is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, not paying, not even paying attention. And the parent's just exasperated. Is that what God is? God is an exasperated parent? He's just going to let us do what we want anyway? That would imply that, that he doesn't honor his word. So, and, and you know what I love about this scriptural support? It starts at John 3.16. It's so cool. Listen to this. John 3.16 to 20. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. And I love that because it starts at John 3.16 and everybody knows that. I mean, so if you're ever in a conversation with people that don't believe hell because it's unloving, just take them to John 3.16 and keep reading. It's so easy to remember. Second one, God is too merciful to keep people in hell forever. This, I must be honest, I mean, this was kind of a concern of mine a long time ago. I'm like, yeah, hell, eternal torment. I mean, that's serious stuff. And uh, you really have to want to believe the Bible to accept that on its face value. And, and you just say, well, God's doing it. God is holy. God can do this. This is right. So the verse here is 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 to 10. This is very good too. Uh, Paul is writing to these Thessalonians and they have been under intense persecution. And this is what he writes. It is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe. So this hits several things. This says that it's righteous that God is doing this and it talks about how it will be everlasting destruction and it talks about the fact that those who deny the gospel of Christ are the ones that will suffer this. No other path to God. Again, an excellent verse. And I want to give another quote from Charles Hodge out of Future Punishment. Oh, I love this quote. It would be well if all who call themselves Christians should then learn that it is not their business to believe and teach what they think true or right, 
but what God in his holy word has seen fit to reveal. Bind ourselves by the word. Uh, The last uh, five points I have in the closing is entitled Living with the Reality of Hell. Uh, We are faced with this, and so we must deal with people uh, in terms of this. We can't allow them to just dispense with hell at their pleasure. First, God's offer of mercy is greater than the punishment promised in hell. God's mercy overcame this, and God's mercy is of greater impact in our lives and in our world than, than even hell is. Christ suffered that we might be spared suffering, but we must humble ourselves. We must admit our inability to save ourselves, and we must embrace Christ. If we refuse to do so, we remain in our sin and guilt, and God's judgment rests upon us, just like in John 3 it was stated. Do we think God will not have those who reject his son drink from the cup of wrath that Christ himself drank from? Those who reject Christ get to not drink from the cup of wrath? That's one of the things about universalists you know, that seems really weak to me when asked, but why then did Jesus even have to die? Why do we still have missionaries going out there? And their answers are, are very lame. They have no reason. They, they go on to say, well, it's an example of how we should live and blah, 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 blah. It's just garbage. Number two, we have been bought at a terrible price, and we should be thankful for that. This guy, Michael, he was suffering survivor's guilt even before you know, the culmination of his, his life on earth. He was like, I don't deserve this, you know, this life while all these people die. And so what he didn't realize is he is spurning the joy of heaven because they, he, these people aren't worthy of condemnation. It's really to misunderstand everything about the Bible. It's to misunderstand everything about Christianity. Um, A.W. Pink in Eternal Punishment wrote this, a realization of the unspeakable misery which awaits the lost and which each of us fully merited would immeasurably deepen our gratitude and bring us to thank God more fervently that we have been snatched as brands from the burning fire and delivered from the wrath to come. And so anybody who is in this situation uh, must realize that they don't understand God. They don't understand wrath. They don't understand holiness. Um, it's, and, and in our humanist culture, it makes sense because man is the measure of all things in our culture right now. We don't ask the hard questions. We don't ask how God could possibly let us into heaven. We just say, why is there even a hell? You know, we all should get to go to heaven. You know, God's a nice guy. He won't possibly send us to hell. Uh, number three, sin is a destroyer and we must not ally with it in the least. Sin will be expunged from the earth and we must not uh, defend it. We must not embrace it. We must not protect it in our lives. And so we must fight it. We must recognize it for the evil that it is. And we must not harbor it in our hearts. Number four, life on earth is surreal. Michael got that part right. It is strange to be walking around and be so totally immersed in the spiritual truths that you realize lost, 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 hell, hell. You know, how do you, you'd be a crazy if you just started, you know, standing on the street corner and telling all the people that, right? I mean, maybe that's what some people are called to do, but yet, uh, yeah, it's very difficult to share the truth of reality with the people that are denying it. 
Uh, how do you shake them out of that lethargy? Hell is as real as heaven. People desperately want to believe in heaven, but they desperately want to reject a belief in hell. And yet we must engage people. We must warn them of the wrath that is to come, just as John the Baptist did. Uh, people don't want to hear it, but still, we need to share it. And the last point is this, and uh, it is trust the word of God and do not treat it as unbelievers do. And let me again quote Charles Hodge. It would be well if all who call themselves Christians should learn that it is not their business to believe and teach what they think true or right, but what God in his holy word has seen fit to reveal. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit to convert people to an understanding of the gospel message. Lord, we pray that you would give us courage to engage uh, people that we know and people that we care about um, concerning the truths of hell, uh, concerning what awaits people after this uh, life on earth ends. Lord, all of us know people who are lost. And we pray that you would open up opportunities, that we would be able to share with them, that we would be able to, uh, from our hearts, uh, show them that we do love them and care about them and desperately want to see them uh, cling to the life that is offered by Christ. Uh, we ask you, Lord, now to uh, bless us and keep us in your will. And we pray for Pastor Kaiser and Ben, too, that you would bring them home safely. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.